G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. I'm sure you've seen the news that Westpac has been charged by the money laundering and counter-terrorism financing regulator for 23 million breaches of criminal law, including allowing the financing of terrorism and child abuse. Westpac is Australia's second largest bank. It donated $2.9 million to the Liberal Party and made over $6 billion in profit. It also sacked 900 workers last year and sacked a further 2,500 people two years ago. What did Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, say about this? He said it was ultimately a judgment for the board of Westpac on whether the CEO should resign over the allegations it breached financial laws 23 million times. I bring this up because at the moment the Morrison government is pushing for the union-busting anti-worker ensuring integrity bill to be passed in the Senate in the dying days of the last days of Parliament sittings before they go off for their overseas junkets and Christmas festivities. This bill aims to deregister unions at the whim of employers and using bureaucratic procedures like missing paperwork as a means of stopping unions taking the fight up to those same employers. In fact, criminalising unions for misdemeanours. You may have heard that workers' fate is in the hands of a number of crossbench senators like Cathy Lambie from Tasmania and a couple from South Australia and Pauline Hanson from One Nation. She, in fact, has said she won't pass a bill to deregister a union because of missing paperwork. So Christian Porter, the LNP Industrial Relations Minister, has come up with the clever ruse of a compromise to create a demerit point system so those naughty boys and girls in the working class don't get too uppity. It is reminiscent of John Howard's gambit, those refugees are jumping the queue, even though there was no queue to jump as they ran for their lives. We spoke to Renee Burns, Executive Director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights, about why the Insuring Integrity Bill is a bad piece of legislation, particularly for the most vulnerable workers. But first, some union news. The ACTU warning as world's biggest trade deal nears completion with no details known to voters. The Australian Council of Trade Unions revealed on November the 4th that the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RECIP, trade agreement touted as the biggest in history, is nearing completion, but no one outside the secret negotiations knows what it contains. The agreement will cover almost half of the world's population, over 30% of global GDP, and over a quarter of world's exports. 
Rumours suggest that this new trade deal may give monopoly rights to pharmaceutical companies in Australia, facilitate further privatisation and once again increase the number of vulnerable temporary visa workers in Australia. These trade deals change people's lives and have a huge impact on the Australian economy. They should be negotiated in full view of the Australian people, not behind closed doors, said ACTU President Michelle O'Neill. This new agreement could change the accessibility of cheap medication, increase the cost of services and make it harder to get a job, especially in regional areas. There is no justification for keeping the Australian people in the dark about this, she said. A year after the ABC revealed it had underpaid casual staff, the broadcaster will pay back $23 million owed to affected employees from next month. In December last year, it was revealed the ABC had underpaid up to 2,500 staff employed since 2012 by using flat pay rates without accounting for penalties, overtime and other entitlements required under the ABC Enterprise Agreement. Some current and former casual employees in news and current affairs are among those who were underpaid. The MEAA, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance Media Director Neil Jones says, We are pleased that current and former ABC casual staff are finally being paid the money owed by their employer. Now we have a process for these wages to be paid. The underpayments only came to light because a union member raised the alarm. He added, this issue highlights that the ABC relies heavily on staff who spend years employed as casuals or across a series of short-term contracts. Many staff are legally entitled to ongoing employment. The ABC needs to introduce a clear process to ensure that these employees are provided with the opportunity to convert from casual and contract employment to ongoing employment. The 13th attempt at sex work law reform in South Australia has failed and sex workers both locally and nationally have expressed their outrage. The bill, originally aimed at fully decriminalising sex works, was defeated in the House of Assembly November the 20th with 19 ayes and 24 noes. As a result, sex workers will have to continue working under criminal laws without any industrial health and safety protections. In both Queensland and the Northern Territory, bills that fully decriminalise sex work have been introduced recently, reflecting a global movement supported by sex workers and human rights organisations. The South Australian vote was a conscience vote not done on party lines. Jules Kim, CEO of Scarlet Alliance, points out that in New South Wales it was evidence of widespread police misconduct and corruption that led to the decriminalisation of sex work. There is clear evidence that police are inappropriate regulators of the sex industry, Kim says. If this bill had passed, sex workers would still be subject to federal and state laws like any other citizen. Sex work itself would simply not be considered a crime. Decriminalisation does not mean no regulation, rather it means whole-of-government regulation. (coughs) Treasurer Josh Feidenberg set the pond rippling this week with the statement that 60-year-olds need to keep working to breathe life in our failing economy. I thought a few very considered letters to the editor in one of the country's leading newspapers might give some idea of some of the issues for older workers glossed over by the Treasurer. Wendy 
from Juan Turner wrote, Age Matters Treasurer, I'm nearly 60 and fortunately am still able to pick up work as a casual relief teacher since I gave up full-time employment. Any other path I have investigated is closed, shut, nicely, as soon as my age becomes apparent. Josh Frydenberg's notion that people of my vintage will gleefully find a new career and dandy employment is ludicrous. Hop down from your lofty, protected and entitled position and check out the real world, Treasurer. Qualified but too old. I am 63 and have twice applied for a position as a service delivery officer with the Australian Taxation Office in the past two years. I have a tertiary qualification in business studies obtained in 1976 and have held casual short-term and voluntary positions in the preparation of income tax returns over the past 20 years. However, I did not proceed to the first stage of the interview process with the ATO. After my failed application last year, I received feedback from the ATO. It stated that it had received 1,551 applications, of which 1,163 candidates had progressed to a video interview, and then 207 had been offered casual, part-time, full-time and short-term positions. The application form stated that graduates and those who were studying were encouraged to apply. I understand the need for the ATO to recruit and give young people opportunities, but I also believe my age could have been a factor in my lack of success. That was Gary from McLeod. Ready, willing, but unable. Are the treasurer and his staff aware that as a self-employed carpenter contractor aged 63, I cannot get income protection insurance from my insurance organisation after I reach 65. Without this legally required insurance, I am not allowed to perform my duties on a registered building site in any state of Australia. No builder or client is allowed to hire me. I'm happy to keep on working legally and safely, but how can this occur if I am not fulfilling my obligations as an independent licensed contractor according to the law of the land? The apparent gulf between the government's confused leadership and what we have to put up with outside its bubble grows ever wider and like the atmosphere at the moment is difficult to see through. That was Mark from Suffolk Park in New South Wales. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to me, Renee. Renee Burns is the Executive Director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights. Can you give us an understanding of how you've tackled the issue of Insuring Integrity Bill? The Institute of Employment Rights is an independent body. We are based um, on a tripartite structure after the International Labour Organisation and we adopt those principles um, as our own in pursuing fair and dignified workplaces. Um, In approaching the Insuring Integrity Bill, we've taken the principles at the heart of the International Labour Organisation, particularly freedom of association, and looked at the bill in terms of our obligations at international law for labour and human rights. Our analysis of the bill says that the provisions uh, suggested, they don't meet our obligations at international law. The bill sets out a means for any sufficiently interested parties to 
seek uh, deregistration of unions, to seek disqualification of union officials, um, and to interfere um, excessively in the internal structure and organisation of trade unions. Now, it's interesting when you say, first off, it doesn't uh, meet Australia's obligations, international obligations. People might go, oh, well, you know, we're just being pushed around by the outside world. But in actual fact, the hammering out of rights and uh, obligations has been one of the most important elements of human rights since the Second World War. Absolutely, absolutely. The um, International Labour Organisation conventions that speak to freedom of association are formed out of a tripartite process. So these are principles that are fundamental to workplace relations. They're hammered out by governments, by employer bodies and by trade union bodies representing workers. Um, So they have an element of, of authority in the way that they are come about. The Decisions that go around those conventions um, and flesh out the rights um, inferred by them are set out primarily by the Tripartite Committee on Freedom of Association. Um, So being a tripartite body adds, again, to the authority of those decisions. Um, Australia is obliged, um, as a member state of the ILO, to uphold those principles, of um, particularly the principles of freedom of association, Um, as a signatory to the conventions 87 and 98 on freedom of association and bargaining uh, rights at work, Australia is further obliged to uphold those principles. Um, And again, those principles are reflected in the UN International Covenant on Social Political Rights and the UN International Covenant on uh, Cultural Rights as well. So put simply, if Australia wants to appear to be a good bloke, then it needs to uh, front up to its responsibilities. Absolutely, absolutely. And we are, we have been subject for a number of years from criticism from both UN supervisory bodies and ILO supervisory bodies on our failure to uphold the rights to which we've agreed. Mm. And so the uh, federal government that we've had uh, f- over the last number of years has been squeezing the throat of our human rights when they take this Ensuring Integrity Bill to the uh, the Parliament for ratification. That that would that's a fair analysis. I think that's a fair analysis, and particularly in the Australian context, um, these international frameworks to which we've agreed are particularly important. We have very few constitutionally enshrined human rights in Australia, um, and so we really do rely on our Parliament to enforce those rights and to recognise what we have agreed to. You've also pointed out it's particularly bad for women. It is particularly bad for women, for workers in general. The the bill. Is, a, is an attack on their voice. It's a, a means of removing power. For women in particular, uh, women are more likely to be employed in precarious and casual occupations. Women are more likely to be employed in caring occupations, which are undervalued. Um, and so by removing union voice, we're taking away that ability for women to really ask for and demand better and fair uh, terms and conditions at work. Um, there's a strike being conducted right now at the Jindy Cheese Factory where women are being underpaid. Um, I believe it's $6 an hour on the shop floor um, oh. in comparison to their male counterparts. And I, I, I'm of the understanding that there are other sites where the gap is more like $12 an hour. Um, so these are... Oh, and this is at the same time it's just been reported that uh, women generally are, are receiving 
over $25,000 less in their pay than a male counterpart. Absolutely. So these issues are really important, and this is is what the union movement does. Um, As well as just uh, work rights and conditions of employment, the union movement has got a really strong history being the voice of the working people in pursuing social justice issues. Um, So being at the forefront of issues such as um, Aboriginal recognition under our constitution, um, being involved in the Yes campaign, um, social justice issues are really at the heart of what union does in building community as well. So all of those things are being threatened um, by the proposed bill. It's it's quite shocking, in fact. As you said earlier, the idea that an outside force should uh, be able to decide what workers' representative bodies, who their leaders are, and uh, be able to decide on almost like a whim, you know, a, a class-based whim that uh, you are getting in my way. Uh, that's what this bill is actually doing. That's what this bill is doing. Uh, it, it really is an attack on worker democracy um, and participation in broader democratic issues. Um, the well, We can see the double standards being applied. You know, we've got banking institutions, you know, admitting to illegal activity and the decisions about whether those people stay in, their, in power, in their positions on the board, um, is up to the board, according to the Prime Minister. But in the case of a union official... Uh, that might have contravened workplace laws by taking industrial action in pursuit of, you know, looking for a female toilet um, on site in the case of the CFMEU um, and in, in now in the Jindy situation trying to get equal pay on the floor. Union officials can be disqualified, unions can be deregistered off the back of those activities um, and by, you know, not just the government stepping in but by any sufficiently interested party, which could be an employer, it could be a rival body, it could be an employer lobby group. Oh, in fact, it could actually be an employee, but we've already seen that uh, Greenfield's agreements uh, where people from other sites, from the other side of the country, three of them uh, can decide on the fate of the workforce across Australia. Absolutely. And that's one of the tactics um, that has come out. Um, Initially, employers were really pushing for greenfield agreements and being able to make them. Um, But by making these really small cohort agreements, first up, instead of a greenfield agreement involving a union, uh, what they're able to do is lock out the union from industrial action. Uh, So our strike laws are very limited in Australia. Um, They do not abide by our international obligations with regard to the right to strike. Um, And what they do is limit um, protected industrial action to uh, the bargaining period um, and only to those issues being looked at in an enterprise bargain. Uh, So if an employer is able to reach an agreement without a union with a small cohort of three employees, that agreement becomes in place and then the union, even if they do come in and negotiate something better, are unable to take any industrial action. Without that coercive lever, there's there's no real reason to bargain. I've been to a couple of different things where people have discussed the idea that using legislation as a method of maintaining industrial rights has clouded people's view to the actions that the unions have taken over a long period of time to create a, a more level playing field for the, the different classes that are involved in uh, our industrial relations. Absolutely. I think there is a lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication around 
what unions are and what the role of unions has been um, historically. Um, and I think that's reinforced by the rhetoric we get from conservative governments and employer bodies. Um, unions are not uh, an external third party to the employment relationship. Um, unions are essentially the workers. Uh, unions are groups of workers coming together to um, exercise their voice and counterbalance the power of their employer in, in being able to ask for decent work in terms and conditions as well as pursuing social justice issues. We get frequently painted unions being a third party muscling in on the employer-employee relationship. Um, and, and that's just simply not the case. Um, being a, a tripartite body, the Institute of Employment Rights recognises that unions are uh, an essential part of our system and really need to be recognised. And that diminishing role of unions um, by way of even you know right of entry and um, enforcement mechanisms is seeing uh, the explosion in underpayment cases and wage theft that, that we're experiencing now. Um, the move to legislating employment minimum conditions uh, is really something that happened uh, with the Work Choices Amendments. Um, and it, it was a move away from unions being a central role to uh, bargaining. We're, we're in a fairly unique position in Australia where agreements can be made, collective agreements can be made with um, employees at an enterprise without union involvement. Um, that's not something that's replicated um, elsewhere in the world. And it's a crazy idea. If you're an individual working, it's hardly likely that you're going to be able to have the same power and muscle as the uh, person that's employing you and the organisation that's employing you. Absolutely. And I think um, there's been a lot of talk around the complexity of the system of late. Um, <laughs> the system is probably now existing in one of its least complex forms ever. Um, it is, it, it's a system of laws. Laws are complex. That's why we have lawyers. That's why we have people specialising in this as a profession. Um, that's what unions do on behalf of the workers. What we've done by uh, reducing the role of unions and trying to delegitimise their voice is put at the employer's feet not only their own obligations as employers, but also traditional roles of unions. So employers are now being asked to wrangle the varying views of their employees, to negotiate with them and to somehow make sure that they're following up all the procedural uh, requirements and understanding the law. And that's a lot of ask for anyone. Um, we are a small, medium-sized economy uh, for businesses and it's something, you know, to take that pressure off and to recognise that it is a complex system. It's meant to be. It's a, it's a system of laws. Um, we need to reintroduce the legitimate role of unions. Um, it would be somewhat akin to removing um, accountants and tax agents and asking employers to make sense of tax law. Exactly right. And to finish up, I'd really like to bring up this kind of interesting thing that happened here in, in Victoria recently when uh, demonstrators were outside IMAC uh, and the police were completely savage, basically. Uh, I was speaking to someone about something else entirely and they had said, well, that really pressed a nerve, didn't it? And uh, in a sense, uh, the... Uh, Ensuring integrity bill is pressing a nerve, isn't it? It really is. Um, I think, alarmingly, it, it does seem to be part of a larger agenda at quietening um, quietening Australians, creating that quiet Australian voice that we, we hear all the time, um, spoken about uh, by our Prime Minister. Um, a few weeks ago, our Prime Minister also raised uh, secondary boycotts as an issue, and particularly around environmental issues. Um, now, there are 
you know, with regard to the environmental issues, there are probably uh, constitutional issues, and I don't think that that would actually get up. Um, but traditionally, secondary boycotts are talked about in regard to workplace issues. Um, and again, this is something that we have been subject to ILO criticism and international criticism since the 1970s. Our secondary boycott laws don't um, abide by our international obligations. Yeah, and that's right. And also uh, this idea that um, we've got a federal government. This is emphasising the fact that the federal government we have is not uh, governing for the entire population, the interests of everybody and the interests of the country. They're actually governing for a particular group of people. That's right. And you know, it comes back to power. There's there's power in money, there's power in business. Uh, workers do have power, but workers can only exercise that power collectively for any sort of effective means. Um, and, and that's what this bill goes to stopping. It goes to limiting worker power. Um, there are currently... One, one thing that I do find alarming is that the bill is quite... Um, premature. There are existing provisions in our legislation that haven't even been tested yet with regard to deregistering um, organisations. Um, I'm not of the personal opinion that that's the right way to go, but we're jumping the gun with not even testing what we already have, which is excessive in compared, no, when compared to other industrialised countries. Do you think it's a publicity campaign then? I mean, if we've already got existing uh, organisations and laws... Uh, this kind of heavy-handed thuggery, uh, legislative thuggery, is actually almost like a uh, publicity campaign so that people uh, in uh, their precarious employment will get it right through the, you know, into their head that uh, the government's really powerful and Big End of Town is really powerful. Um, I think definitely it could be framed that way. Um, I think it's more dangerous than that because I think what it says is that um, you know, the government is aware of what's in the current legislation and they've said we're not even going to try testing that because that's not quite what we want. We want the ability to bring these provisions against any union at any time. We, the bar in this, um, in, this legis- in this proposed bill is set so low um, that it's really easy to make out a ground for bringing an application to the court. Um, whether the court um, approves that application and does deregister a union or not is, is one question. Um, however, what this does is really go to the heart at weakening the institutions. So with the bar set so low and the ground so wide with any, you know, even paperwork contraventions can trigger I know. this. Oh, you don't cross a T and you don't dot an I. That's it's, such a classist approach, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, it's it's quite dangerous. So when those um, when those applications are made, there's also no recourse to the union for um, vexatious claims. So even if a claim is found to have no substance by the court and the union is free to go on, um, there's no course of redress. All oh, um, right. So they can use it as a tactic. Absolutely, and it's a no cost jurisdiction as well. So the union is out of pocket for fighting all the these. time. The the unions are always out of pocket. That's another class. Uh, approach too. Absolutely. Um, it's we, we have seen um, the issue of the termination of agreements being used as a bargaining tactic uh, whereby workers are stripped of their current conditions and put back onto the minimum yes. safety net of the award. What we're seeing here is, is another potential tactic where people are encouraged to engage in industrial warfare effectively um, and really 
burn up the resources of our trade union movement. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and on iTunes and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are or whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together.